The sounds you just heard were the sounds of the Museum of Power here in Langford, Malden, Essex. They are the sounds of steam that's powered our energy for the past hundreds of years. I'm outside now, where it's a bit quieter, but those sounds are the sounds that you still hear in power stations today, where steam turbines drive generators, which are powered by burning fossil fuels. That is what creates the steam. Now, I might have moved away from coal, which is what a lot of the machines here at Malden are powered by, but we still rely on gas, oil, petrol, to power so much of the energy that we use every single day. But we all know we cannot keep burning fossil fuels due to the climate-changing effects they are having on our planet. I phoned up Josh from Just Stop Oil to find out why we have to stop. Yeah, that's fine. Start got it. Yeah, OK. Frozen in Siberia, in the Siberian permafrost in, in Russia, there mm. is uh, four to five times the amount of CO2 and methane in humans that have ever released in all of human history, just frozen there in the ground. Now, if that melts, um, we're going to have a very, very big problem on our hands. With just the carbon dioxide we've released into the atmosphere in the last couple hundred years, we've increased the temperature of the Earth, and now we're seeing year-on-year heat waves and crop failure in India, crop failure in Canada, the biggest wildfires in history. We, we can't just turn it off overnight, obviously, but we really need to act like this is an emergency, because it is. Uh, we are in, a, in an emergency situation. Graham Thompson, spokesperson for Greenpeace. If we had decarbonised in the 1990s, then we could have done everything very slowly and made sure that everything was at its most economically advantageous moment to switch different sources. We're not really in that situation anymore. We are in an emergency. We need to decarbonise as quickly as possible. Our chances of meeting the 1.5 degree target are very slim. We need to do a lot more if we're going to do that. Um, our chances of meeting the two degree target are pretty shaky. So even just to guarantee that, we would need to do a bit more. But for the 1.5, we would need to do a lot more, a lot faster. So no, we are not doing enough. Even when you sometimes hear quite big numbers, you have to remember that we're trying to change the entire energy supply of the entire economy yeah. and numerous other large sections of the economy. Um, and it, the changes have to be big. And now, because we've left it so long. My name's Sam Wood, a budding science journalist. And when I was born in 2000, we all knew fossil fuels would run out. But the concern simply wasn't there about global warming. With humans now using approximately the same amount of energy per year as is released by 10 million Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs, an incredible amount of energy, and something that's expected to get bigger in the future. How are we going to power ourselves? Is it renewables? nuclear, biomass, or something else. I thought I would take a look in light of the recent energy crisis we are all experiencing and see which part of the energy, which pretty much all comes from the sun in a roundabout way, is the best. How to best harness the power of the sun. The government tried to answer this energy question with their energy security strategy back in April 2022. But how green really is this strategy? 
back to Graham from Greenpeace to get his thoughts. Well, we, uh, we're pleased with their increased target on offshore wind, which we think is probably the best technology to form the backbone of Britain's electricity supply, uh, given that we're an island, lots of wind, etc. However, um, overall, the document was very high on ambition and very low on mechanisms actually making anything happen. Um, so there were parts of it which seemed entirely aspirational and with no real route to achieve them, which unfortunately makes us worried about the offshore wind target because grouped together with a bunch of unrealistic ambitions, you start to wonder how much faith you can have. Um, however, the offshore wind target is quite good, so I don't want to uh, <clears throat> I don't want to deprive them of all praise, but a lot of the rest uh, um, of the uh, strategy, well, it, it, it didn't really qualify as a strategy. It, it was more like a wish list. To save for the effort and probably boredom of traipsing through the internet to find the UK government's strategy, its major points included a huge target of 50 gigawatts for wind turbines located in the sea, known as offshore wind, which to put it into the perspective is about 20 gigawatts more than what we use every day at the moment. A gigawatt, if you're wondering, is simply a measurement of energy delivered per second. Additionally, the government also wanted more solar panel projects to go ahead, in addition to land-based or onshore wind turbines. However, renewables aren't the complete saviour. One of the biggest concerns that I think a lot of people have with renewables is that they're fantastic when the conditions are windy or a day like today when it's you know sort of really, really sunny um, for sort of solar energy and stuff, but not so much when they when they aren't, um, which is when you require sort of different ones. Um, one of the sort of things that they mention in that strategy and also that's just mentioned generally is nuclear energy, nuclear fission energy. Nuclear energy is genuinely low carbon. Mm -hmm. um, very few things, pretty much nothing is zero carbon, but nuclear is low carbon. And obviously that's a good thing. However, um, in terms of intermittency, in terms of things coming on and off, um, and more importantly, going off when you need them, uh, France, currently half of their fleet of nuclear reactors are not functioning. Um, and they're a country that's completely dependent on nuclear power. It, nuclear power is not reliable. The difference between renewables and nuclear is that renewables do go off quite frequently because of the changes in the weather, but they go off for short periods and they go off giving you advance notice because we have weather forecasts. We know if it's going to be windy or totally calm for a few days. With nuclear, a lot of the time they run solidly, consistently and reliably, but when they do go off, they tend to go off with absolutely no warning and they go off for six months or a year or two years or five years, depending on how serious the problem is. So you have different types of unreliability and you need a grid that's going to be able to cope with them. But that is always the case and always has been the case. You always have energy sources coming on and coming off. The job of the national grid is to balance that and make sure supply is maintained. And with a lot of the smart technologies that are coming online now that is becoming easier mm -hmm. okay. and of course storage technologies as well are developing extremely quickly batteries are becoming much mm -hmm. cheaper and more grid scale storage solutions are being developed all the time 
So I suppose what you're saying there, because like the word I keep hearing is that we need to have a, a systems approach to everything, that everything needs to be sort of, you know, connected and so that we can we connect to different um, countries and their sort of renewable supplies and then that sort of balances out. Would you agree with that? So the systems approach needs to be wider? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's tragic if you run out of energy and your neighbour has an, a surplus, but you just don't have the link to transfer mm. it. And with renewables, you do have a situation where you might have half of Europe having blazing sunshine and the other half of Europe having none. Um, So if we can connect up, we smooth out all of that intermittency and make everything much easier. Now, this systems approach of connecting everything up is this idea that unlike our old gas power stations, which could run alone, putting electricity into the national grid constantly... Because renewables are intermittent, one second we might have wind, the next second we might not. One second we might have sun, the next second it's covered by a cloud. We therefore need a way of storing and transporting this energy all connected together so that it can be a constant feeding into the national grid. One way to store this energy is through gravity, as can be done with a novel idea from company Re-Energize using a system called Pumped Hydro. I spoke to the company's CEO, Stephen Crocher. Pumped hydro is the oldest form of energy storage there is. Um, it's been around for over 100 years um, and it's a very conceptually very simple technology. So when energy prices are cheap or you have an abundance of uh, electricity, too much electricity on the grid, uh, you use that to pump large volumes of water up a mountain, traditionally, from a lower reservoir um, to a top reservoir, typically behind a dam. So if you've been to mountainous areas, you've probably seen a, a big dam across a hanging valley, often concrete, with a reservoir behind it, and that's the top storage tank. So you've created a, a potential energy by pumping it up the mountain. Um, and then when energy prices rise or there's an, uh, a lack of electricity on the power grid, you open your valve to release the water back through the same pipes and you use a turbine to regenerate electricity. In the UK, we have five operational systems. Okay. Um, and, uh, most of these were built uh, between the 1960s and the 1980s. But the problem with those projects are there's a lack of sites, so there aren't enough mountains to to, to build them on. The best sites have already been used. Uh, they're offering, often in environmentally sensitive areas. People don't like you know, national parks being flooded because they're remote. You then have to build new pylon infrastructure across the landscape. All this means that the, the incentive is the projects to get bigger, bigger um, that means the planning consents are more difficult. You often need government support. And then the project takes um, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years to build, depending on its scale. So if you had started to look at a new project today, by the time it's operational, it's probably 20 years. Wow. 15, maybe. But it's that sort of, um, mm. you're talking decades, not, not years. And so if you're trying to solve a climate crisis in the next 15 years um, and, and really get solutions in play, it's a solution that can do some of it but it's not a solution that can do. So you're looking for other solutions. And batteries, um, just as you start to get into longer and longer durations, they just get more and more expensive. And so if you want to keep energy prices low, then batteries are not the solution either. Some of the solutions are cost effective, but take too long to build. Other solutions which you can build quickly 
are not cost effective for the scale of the the yeah. the, 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 the challenge um, and then to talk about the scale of the challenge so so today pumped hydro which does 95 percent of the world's energy storage is 175 gigawatts um, and then the IEA that's the International Energy Agency say that by 2040 we need 10 times that amount of energy storage so we've got 175 gigawatts roughly built over the last 100 years and we're saying in the next 20 something years we've got to build 10 times that so every 18 months we've got to build the same amount of energy storage as was built in the last 100 years the challenge is big you're probably going to ask me how's ours different yes i was because i'm going to say that they've got the five sites across the uk as you've said in those spots those beauty spots with or you know the the, the big dams so yeah. how how is yours different how does that, that address that and how can i suppose can they be built quicker i suppose as a result yeah so th- th- there's a number of things that we're doing so so w- we looked at the sort of the challenges of traditional pumped hydro and why batteries were dominating the energy storage market and and you had this incredibly mature technology and we a few years ago we just said well why is no one talking about this mature technology as a solution for the future. And it's for the reasons I've already said, lack of sites, water extraction, you know, time to build, blah, blah. So we said, well, what can you do with innovation um, to fundamentally change that proposition? And we looked at the very simple equation um, that there is for hydropower and said, well, one thing that we maybe could look at is the density of the fluid. So if you double the density of the fluid, you can half the size of your project or you can half the vertical elevation you need. So we decided to look at density. And um, so we looked at all sorts of different sort of uh, high density fluids. um, And we came up with a suspended solid in water. So this is a fine milled, environmentally benign mineral, non-reactive, non-creative that we suspend in, in, in water. So we, we have this high density fluid, two and a half times density of water. We um, we add uh, sort of benign chemistry to that to create a stable suspension over um, week long or longer timescales. And then we put it into a pumped hydro-like system. So it's not really hydropower anymore. It's hydropower-like. Um, but effectively, the system architecture is the same. But what we've done by increasing the density by two and a half times is the projects can be volumetrically two and a half times smaller, or you can reduce the vertical elevation by two and a half times. If you're doing smaller projects that are faster to build on lower hills, then suddenly you have an order of magnitude more sites that you can have, probably 10, 12 times more sites available to you. Those sites are closer to either points of generation or points of demand. And uh, you can build them more quickly. So suddenly you've overcome many of the problems that you have with traditional pumped hydro. I have to say this solution sounds great for storing some of our renewable energy. You could build it on little hills everywhere and store lots of energy. So how long will it all take to be set up? For us, you know, we could start rolling out at significant scale in four or five years' time. If the politicals will there, the solutions will come through. So I think what is clear is that unlike in the past where we could just have one power source from coal power stations, we now need lots of different green connected power sources and storage to beat climate change. Importantly, this system isn't very far away in the future, so renewables can definitely help to generate clean electricity and these hydropower and other similar storage methods can store this energy cheaply. Innovation here is solving a huge problem for energy storage. 
So is innovation needed in energy generation methods? Many people think so, with one such idea being that with nuclear power already being a low-carbon method of making energy, could you make a reactor in modular sections like Lego bricks and then assembled quickly and cheaply for a source of energy? Not everyone thinks this will help, however. So we talked about nuclear and the intermittency. What do you think about these new um, small modular reactors that are being proposed? And that's supposed to be sort of cheaper and are they sort of going to suffer with the same problems, do you think? From what I've read, uh, they suffer from the same problems as large reactors. And remember, according to the government strategy, mm. they're going to have lots and lots of big reactors and lots and lots of small reactors. As I said, more and more of everything, whether it's good or bad or doesn't exist. Mm. Of course, the small modular reactors don't exist. Um, Rolls-Royce is often described in the press as being, you know, a leading company in developing small modular reactors. But to be honest, their reactors are halfway between big old-fashioned ones and small uh, modular reactors. They're not actually SMRs themselves. Rolls-Royce basically thought, oh, actually, the SMR thing doesn't look like it's going to work. We'll kind of go halfway, which from their perspective may have been sensible, but that's what we're being offered. We're being offered quite small reactors which aren't really SMRs um, as well as the big reactors which would be built by EDF of France um, so yeah the small modular reactor in the really precise sense isn't on the agenda for the UK um, at the moment obviously if other companies make it work uh, then it might we might want to buy them from other other mm -hmm. countries other companies but the Rolls-Royce thing isn't quite that they will suffer from the same problems as traditional nuclear reactors and from what I've read the waste problem would be bigger and worse right. and they would be more expensive in terms of the amount of energy produced. Mm. So the big advantage of them as far as I can see is that it might be because they're smaller it's easier to get them through planning maybe they scare people less than a really big reactor can't really see any other genuine advantage there's a lot of stuff talked about them being cheaper but i've spoken to people in the industry who say well no the whole reason why reactors are big is to generate economies of scale right we tried small modular reactors a long time ago mm. it was too expensive we scaled up to make it cheaper now you're saying by scaling down, we'll make it cheaper. I think we're going to have to accept nuclear is just really expensive. So as Graham says, nuclear power is very expensive, whether it's SMRs or huge reactors, like the one that I am looking at right now here at Sizewell B Nuclear Power Plant in Suffolk. In fact, this power plant um, cost two billion in the 1980s, and a planned further reactor next door, Sizewell C, which will be using the same technologies expected to cost 20 billion, which is very expensive. However, there's no doubt that we do need something like nuclear power because of something called the base load. Now, the base load is the fact that the national grid, the thing that we plug into to get electricity from, always needs some electricity that's continually flowing in. And this means that if renewables stop, any storage is yet to feed in still there's still enough power to go around without turning on a gas generator and using fossil fuels. This, however, though, requires an energy source that produces huge amounts of energy for a long period of time, and only by utilising a very famous equation and the very matter that we are made of can we do it. I'm talking about using the power of atoms that are, of course, made in stars like the sun. 
Now, Albert Einstein showed us back in the 1900s that with his equation, E equals mc squared, matter contains huge amounts of energy, which can be released and utilised for power, as he's done at these nuclear sites like Sizewell B, which I'm standing outside. And even though it's not that big, it's big as a site, but when you compare it to the amount of, sort of land needed for wind turbines and stuff, it's not that big for the amount of energy it generates. 1.2 gigawatts, that's enough to power every sum in Suffolk for 178 years, which is just an incredible amount. It produces 3% of the UK's entire electricity needs, and it can only do that because the power of the atom is so energy dense. Ten years ago, when this atom bomb was exploded, man had just found the key to nature's mightiest secret. In those ten years, all the world's great powers have developed nuclear science, both for peace and for war, racing against time and each other, not knowing yet which way their frightening knowledge will ultimately be used. Pathé News brings you pictures never shown before of Harwell, where Britain's finest scientists, like their opposite numbers all over the world, work in the hope that their achievements will hasten man's progress and not destroy it. The research done here has made possible the huge power plant at Calder Hall, which soon will be going into operation, making Britain the proud owner of the world's biggest nuclear power station. Now, the way that nuclear fission works is that the energy is released basically by taking heavy atoms like uranium and splitting them up into smaller atoms. Now, this works because of two things. Firstly, the fact that atoms that are smaller are more stable and the bigger atoms you get, effectively, the less stable it gets. Now, the way you can perhaps imagine this is if you have a ball of dough that's quite small. It's pretty stable. You could probably hold it in your hand without it falling apart. And that's like a light atom, really. Pretty stable. You're going to require a lot of energy to, you know, rip that dough apart, effectively. Whereas a uranium atom is like a huge ball of dough. Now, you're going to struggle to hold that together in your hand. It's going to be sort of drooping and trying to, trying to get out. And if you threw that piece of dough into the air, it would split into lots of smaller dough pieces. Effectively, with uranium, all you need is a little energy, like that throw of the dough into the air, to split up the atom. And because some of that dough is, is lost, whilst it splits into small dough clumps, because of Einstein's famous equation, that lost dough, which is mass, is converted into energy, and you get enormous amounts of energy out. So you may think at this point, climate change is pretty much solved, isn't it? As long as we build lots and lots of new wind turbines, new solar panels, new nuclear fission energy power plants, and new hydro and other energy storage options. But I question this. Is it right that in solving the climate crisis, we fill the world with solar panels and wind turbines, removing land for food and for nature? Is it right that we dig big mines for uranium and produce lots of nuclear waste for future generations to deal with? Now, of course, if we are able to hand a cool planet to our children, then it's worth it. But what if there is another way entirely? The good news is there is. It's called nuclear fusion, the process that powers the sun. Unlike nuclear fission, it provides huge amounts of energy. 
The problem is, it's incredibly hard to do, with people trying to do it since the late 1940s. The possibility we're exploring is the fusion or joining together of atoms of heavy hydrogen to release energy. The breakthrough happened in this machine right after the 4th of July. If these developments prove ultimately successful, and it is a long-term project, we should have a quite inexhaustible supply of fuel to provide for man's needs in the future. The Princeton breakthrough is the beginning of the end of the oil crisis. Fusion power will not significantly step in to help until the year 2000, or even a few years later, all depending on how earnest latest pursuit. These results are really significant because what we've managed to demonstrate inside JET is that we can create a mini sun, the right kind of mini sun, hold it there for a sustained period and get really good performance levels, which is a major step forward in terms of our quest to get to, to fusion power plants. But to put it in a layman's perspective, of all the energy put into this machine, scientists got 1% out of it at the other end. And they will not get 100% out of the other end until a new plant is built five years from now. Why is it taking so long? It is hard. It is really hard. It is very complex, but it's worth it, and we just have to do it for the future. To understand why it's so hard, we first need to get into the science of how it works. But as I don't have a lab to go to, let's use the next best thing, a kitchen. So as I said a while ago, nuclear fission relies on splitting things up basically, like that pasta I just did there. Now it's usually huge unstable atoms, um, and by splitting those up you release energy as they get more stable because of Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared. Now you might be thinking, okay, so splitting a big atom gives out energy, so surely joining up atoms, which is fusion, would require energy. Well not quite. It's an atom is made up of a dense nucleus, made of protons, positively charged particles, and neutrons, neutral charged particles, which are surrounded by orbiting negatively charged electrons. But it's the nucleus, where those protons and neutrons are, that decides its stability. Now a good way to think about this is with raindrops, as you only really get ones of a certain size when it's raining outside. Any bigger, and the wind splits them up as they fall, any smaller, they join up with other raindrops to make a bigger one. Effectively, you get a perfect size raindrop that's not too big, so it won't split up as it falls, and it's not too small, meaning that it won't join up with another one. And it's sort of the same story when it comes to the nucleus of atoms. The perfect size raindrop atomically is iron, the most stable element, and by splitting things heavier than iron, you basically release energy, like uranium. It's heavier than iron, releases energy. But by putting things together smaller than iron, we gain energy. Which means that if you put hydrogen together to make helium, if you put helium together to make bigger elements, you will still gain energy. Now this process happens in the sun itself, and as you can probably guess, you therefore need very high temperatures, which equally require a lot of heat energy. These temperatures create something called a plasma. But what is a plasma? The University of York's Professor Howard Wilson explains. In its simplest form, a, a plasma is a, a, an ionised gas. So it's like a gas in, in some ways, um, but rather than a gas where your particles uh, carry no charge, and so they only interact with each other by direct collisions, in a plasma, 
um, the, the particles are charged. And that happens when you give energy to the gas. So either you can apply a strong electric field or in the case of fusion, apply a lot of heat. And then just, you could imagine going from a solid to a liquid to a gas by applying heat, say to ice, through water, to steam. If you keep applying that heat, you effectively boil off the electrons from your from your nuclei of your atoms. Mm -hmm. And so you get this soup of positively charged ions and negatively charged electrons. Overall, the whole thing is charge neutral, but it's carrying these these charged particles. And those charged particles react with each other in different ways to the way a neutral particle would react with each other. And this is called a plasma. And a plasma behaves in different ways from a neutral gas because of the different ways that that the charged particles interact with each other. So, for example, um, I'm talking to you now through a sound wave that's Mm -hmm. tapping through the neutral gas of of the air that we're we're in now. Um, A plasma will also carry a sound wave, but that sound wave has different properties because of the different ways that the the charged particles react with each other. And so, because it behaves in a different way to a neutral gas, we say it's a different state of matter and we call it the fourth state of matter. With this exotic fourth state of matter being found in stars where fusion happens, how do we even know it's possible on Earth? For that, we have to journey to the UK's Fusion County. You join me now in the county of Oxfordshire, a place which, oddly enough, has become an absolute hub of fusion research. Now, you see, Harwell in Oxfordshire was the place where, in 1946, the Atomic Energy Research Establishment was set up. Now, it was set up there because the two real places where a lot of the research had been done into nuclear physics was Oxford University and Cambridge University. So they wanted to locate wherever they were doing the research close to one of those two universities. As Oxfordshire had more land, it went to Harwell. And this was a place where, instead of developing the nuclear bombs, they're actually working on nuclear power applications for the future. At this point, though, fusion was a pipe dream. Scientists themselves didn't know whether there was any fundamental physical scientific barrier to doing it on Earth. This all changed in 1955, though, after a paper by one man, John D. Lawson, came out of Harwell. In it, he found that there was no physical science barrier to doing it here on Earth, as long as three things were achieved. So, as you say, we have to achieve the Lawson criterion, which is the product of three things, so-called triple product. Uh, That's the density of the fuel, the temperature of the fuel, and something called the confinement time. Mm -hmm. We have to try and achieve a temperature of around 200 million degrees, and that's that's an optimum. Too high is not good, too low is not good. Um, The density... That's kind of obvious in a way. The more dense your fuel, the more likely the the different nuclei are Mm -hmm. to bang into each other and therefore create fusion. And so the higher the density also, the better the conditions for fusion. Um, And so that's the density and the temperature. The third thing is something called the confinement time. And that is how well your system holds onto your fuel. How how well does it confine your fuel? In magnetic confinement fusion, in a tokamak in in particular, or a stellarator, uh, you confine that fuel with with magnetic fields, so-called magnetic confinement fusion. Mm -hmm. The longer the confinement time, the bigger the triple product. Now, what what does the confinement time mean? Now, the way I, I usually describe the confinement time is to think about a bucket of water. 
uh, and a bucket of water, if your bucket has no holes in it and you ignore evaporation, etc., that bucket of water has an infinite water confinement time, if you like. That water will stay there mm-hmm. forever. But if I now drill holes in that bucket, the water will leak out. And the more holes I drill, the faster the water will leak out. The time taken for half the water to leak out is broadly the confinement time of water in the bucket and so clearly the more holes i drill in that bucket the more leaky my bucket the shorter the confinement time now take that analogy across to a a fusion system where we're trying to hold on to our plasma with magnetic fields uh, at a certain density as high as possible and this optimal temperature of 200 million degrees and that magnetic field will not be a perfectly good system for holding on to the plasma particles and heat will leak out and so there is a characteristic particle confinement time and a characteristic energy confinement time that energy confinement time has to be long enough in order for this triple product to be big enough and that's where the interaction between the magnetic field and the plasma become really important how good is that magnetic field at keeping hold of that plasma and that that depends on processes very complex processes associated with plasma turbulence mm-hmm. uh, and that's a key physics piece of plasma physics that that is fundamental to achieving fusion conditions how how does that plasma turbulence and the plasma instabilities that can form from the interaction between the plasma and the uh, and the magnetic field how do they influence the confinement time therefore how do they influence the triple product therefore how how do they influence the um, the fusion power that's delivered so as you heard there it is certainly possible to do on earth if we meet those lawson criteria this as howard says is done using magnetic fields, using something called a tokamak or torus, which is shaped like a big metal ring donut, with the plasma going around like the filling inside. And even though it's not a perfect magnetic bucket for the plasma, we are getting somewhere, with this year a record-breaking run happening at JET, a tokamak in Oxfordshire, producing 59 megajoules of energy and sounding like this. How do you feel like you've, you've achieved all this? Is it is it sort of tokamak design? Is it teamwork, collaboration, money? What what what's your view? Sunchi Chen, an engineer on the Jet Project. I think kind of everything you've listed really um, has contributed to achieving this, um, and you know it's no it's no small feat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an, a record that stands on its own. It's a record that's a result of forty years of research and forty years worth of engineers coming and going, and joining you know a massive world leading team. So I, I would say, yeah, mostly I'd say teamwork and collaboration mm-hmm. um, coming from a sort of technical standpoint, but also a logistical standpoint. Um, the team on JET and just in sort of uh, fusion in general is much more than just scientific um, and technical collaborators and people who contribute everything that goes into it as far as funding, everything that goes into it as far as procurement and mm-hmm. um, manufacturing and uh, procuring suppliers and things like that um, is all equally important as the actual raw physics and raw science of it. However, there is an issue with JET and other tokamaks in that they are still getting less energy out than the energy they put in, a property physicists call gain. This means that it isn't generating power to use. But Why? For those of us who aren't sort of familiar with fusion, what, what are the things that are limiting um, JET itself from achieving sort of the net energy gain that, that's needed? 
Well, I think it's important to note that it was never designed to achieve net energy gain. It was designed purely as a research uh, machine to be able to test the technologies that will eventually go into a net energy tokamak. Mm -hmm. um, so if we're talking strictly physical, it'd probably be things like just the size of it, um, you know, with, with larger plasmas, with larger volume, um, the surface area of the plasma doesn't scale the same. So basically, with larger plasmas, you're losing less heat. Um, and there is a sort of critical size, I suppose, when it comes to trying to achieve an energy output. But like I said, JET is purely for research, um, and it is currently the most powerful, biggest mm -hmm. tokamak in the world. Um, and that's really what's necessary to then test technologies that will go into ITER, which mm -hmm. is being designed for an energy output. But size isn't the only issue. Think about the bucket of water again. One of the consequences of those holes is that that water is pouring out and making a real mess all over your floor. And the leakier the bucket, the bigger the mess it makes. Mm -hmm. We have a similar issue with, uh, with tokamaks in that the more leaky the magnetic field, the more heat we have to put in. But that means that heat has to come out, that heat has to be exhausted. And so uh, that is a big challenge. How does one get all that heat out at the rate you're putting in? And so the, the confinement time determines not only how effective your fusion power is, but also the challenge of the technology to handle the exhaust. So it's a really big, a really big deal. Now these issues are hard to resolve, but innovation is helping find solutions. As well as jet at the facility, you've also got a, a smaller sort of reactor um, where you've you just finished the, the MAST-U upgrade. What, what's different about MAST-U compared to, to JET? So the MAST-U is something what is what we call a spherical tokamak. Okay. Um, JET, so that, that stands for Joint European Taurus. Um, the, word, the word Taurus essentially means donut. Mm -hmm. um, so the main difference is uh, the shape. The JET is more of a toroidal donut shape and MAST is more a spherical shape, okay. um, but kind of with the core taken out. So it's still technically a donut, but yeah, more like an yeah. apple shape. So that makes it smaller, it makes it more compact, the plasma volume is, is less. Um, and some other really important differences are the diverters. Um, in the mast you in the upgrade, um, there was the new diverters, what we call the Super X diverters. Okay. Um, so for this sort of uh, tokamak configuration, having those Super X diverters essentially helped uh, take more of the exhaust fumes, uh, more of the exhaust gases out of the out of the plasma. Um, with a, they have a larger surface area, I believe, so it made it easier to okay. do. So is it a diverter almost like an exhaust? Yeah. For so that's, that's essentially, yeah, that's essentially what it serves as, is to take out the um, exhaust sort of helium and mm -hmm. uh, out of the plasma. So the that stuff it can that's continue. sort of yeah, diluting everything, the... Yeah, everything yeah, the that doesn't need to be there. And, and what are your thoughts on commercial efforts to get fusion done in the sort of private sector? So we, we welcome, you know, private efforts to fusion um, because fusion is really... Uh, is, is one of the climate change solutions that benefits all of humanity. Um, healthy competition is welcomed because ultimately it helps the job get done. Mm -hmm. um, and if we want fusion in time, what we need is, you know, a united front um, against climate change and, and towards towards fusion and towards um, the research and everything. So, yeah, um, having as, as many ways to achieve fusion as we can is helpful for everyone. Yeah, no, no, that's what I've heard, that the sort of the more people that are working on this problem, yeah, the sort of exactly. better. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, 
it's like, it's like with the, the COVID vaccine, um, a lot of people didn't think it would, could mm. get done so quickly, but the difference was the world had a united front against COVID. And if everyone had that approach towards climate change, we might get things done a lot quicker. This united front is slowly being created. With these commercial investors interested in helping solve future energy's problems and unlock effectively limitless energy. And unlike the international efforts, which sometimes move quite slowly, radical, clever new ideas are being thought of, like the one at First Light Fusion in Oxfordshire, to get fusion power on the grid as quick as possible. Their approach is to fire projectiles at capsules of hydrogen to generate fusion inspired by one small animal. I spoke to head of experimental physics at the company, Hugo Doyle, about their approach. Am I right in saying this all started because of a small creature called the pistol shrimp? Is that sort of where it came from? Yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I always cringe slightly because, you know, <laughs> what we do is a bit more complicated than that. But it, it, it is a nice way of conceptualising it, and it's a pretty fantastic creature. Um, and the idea is here is it really shows the effect of, of concentration of energy. So you have, um, you know, what's a relatively slow-moving creature, this pistol shrimp, and it can click its claws and you know under the sea and create uh, a small confined bit of water that gets so hot it ionizes and becomes a plasma uh, and all that energy that it concentrates into a small ball then gets released as a loud sound and a sort of miniature explosion almost underwater uh, and it is very much you know we're scaling up that idea um, although, you know, we do it in slightly different ways. Yeah. We, we don't have a lot of pistol shrimps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just have loads. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I suppose um, you do it in slightly different ways. So what, what machines do you have sort of currently um, to, to sort of do projectile fusion? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Good question. So we've, we've got two types of machines in the, in the lab here, just north of Oxford. Our sort of preliminary machi- machine where we've done a lot of research and development is something called a gas gun. Uh, and these, these have been around since the 60s and they just work, you can buy them, usually they just work. And uh, you use gunpowder to accelerate a projectile to around 8 kilometres per second, which in, in old money is something like 15,000 miles an hour. And then you drive that energy, It drives a, when the projectile hits the target, it drives a shock into your target and that couples the energy into your fuel. We don't think you can scale that up. That's not reactor technology. Uh, to go faster, you have to use, we believe, electromagnetic launch. Um, and there's some famous examples of this, like rail guns and coil guns. Uh, so we use s- something similar to that, uh, which is called a uh, flyer plate launcher, which uses a massive electrical high voltage pulse power machine. Uh, there's a good evidence that this isn't completely uh, off the wall. There's a big machine in America called the Z machine in New Mexico and they've accelerated a flyer plate to 46 kilometers per second Uh, and that wasn't made to do that, that was made to create x-rays that machine so it really shows it's possible. Uh, So as we move forward into the next stage uh, of our work here we'll be building a massive one of these pulse power flyer plate accelerators. Wow, and you you actually have done it. That's the, the that's the, the incredible thing. You achieved fusion back in April, wasn't it? Um, how did that feel to have finally all of that sort of theory validated? 
It was a bit of a relief. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty stressful time, uh, but super exciting. You know, there's a couple uh, plastic cups of champagne going around. And we actually did it just before Christmas, actually. And then we spent the next sort of month or two repeating it, doing it really, really robustly. We were quite keen to show that we had definitely actually got fusion. There's some good stories of people thinking they had it and not got it. Uh, so we worked with um, the UK Atomic Energy Authority, who are kind of the world leaders in, in neutron detection, and they helped peer review the work we had done. Yeah, huge, huge relief. Of course, we haven't been able to sit back and, and twiddle our thumbs. Uh, so we've carried on doing experiments. Um, so we didn't, you know, back in earlier in the year, we didn't produce many fusion neutrons. It was very much a proof of concept. Uh, we produced something like 100 neutrons. Uh, no one here gain, that's for sure. Uh, but I hope if I speak to you, certainly, you know, that time next year, you know, hopefully by Christmas, we'll have significantly more neutrons than that. And, you know, we carry on improving and, and working towards gain ultimately. And, and along with that, on the business side, um, we're going to go for our next funding round and uh, get you know, much more money to produce this bigger pulsed power machine, which will be the biggest pulsed power machine in the world. It will be something like 100 meters diameter. We'll have to move location. Uh, and that will be super exciting. The company's going to grow. We're 70 people now and will be hopefully something like 250 people in, in a couple of years. Yeah. Wow. Well, very exciting time, man. Very exciting. And I suppose the final question that everyone I spoke to hates to answer, I've had lots of different answers <laughs> to this one, is how long do you think it will take to get fusion power working? Yeah, good question. And there's a lot of different ways to answer that. I mean, what, what I will say is I think um, both companies and national labs, you look, you look at the STEP machine and the national lab, um, you look at companies like ourselves and other companies are all um, being super ambitious and there's a huge challenge and there's no denying that and the question is, is are we being realistically ambitious? Obviously we think we are, uh, I'm sure nothing, not everything will go to plan. What, what I would also say is from the other end, you know, obviously there's been a lot in the news, particularly the recent heat wave of global warming having to um, decarbonize our, our fuel cycle and electrify everything and you know so demand is going up where supply we're limiting ourselves um, and obviously solar and wind are fantastic uh, and they work very well but the general understanding is that you know certainly you know, towards the end of this century we won't have enough to to meet demand and at the moment if we're not going to use coal and gas the only real way to kind of uh, compensate is nuclear fission power plants, which work and, and you know, are great, uh, but they have big problems as well. PR being one of them. Um, also, they're expensive. Uh, there's huge regulations. They're comparatively dirty from a sort of radioactive viewpoint. Um, and there's always this sort of worry about runaway reactions, as has been in the news a lot. Um, we believe, we hope, uh, and our modelling uh, supports that fusion power can be that thing that fills in the, the requirements. And we think it can be cheaper and cleaner than fission power. Um, so, you know, to come back to your original question about <laughs> timelines, yeah, I, I, I firmly personally believe that people will get gain, um, and people got very close to gain this year at JET and NIF, and it's been in the news a lot. 
certainly in the next decade, for sure, hopefully much, much sooner than that. And I think we'll, we'll have a reactor um, technology, um, you know, certainly in, in the 30s or let's say by 2050, hopefully again much sooner than that. And, and that's what everyone is promising. As, as a planet, we need to have an economic reactor uh, that we can, you know, sell electricity and people will buy and build uh, by certainly by 2050. And that, you know, if we don't do it by then, well, maybe it's, it's not a case of it's not worth doing, but it will be much more difficult to, to, to sort of justify doing for, from the economics, I think. So given where we are now, it makes no sense to talk about anything less than 15 to 20 years mm. away in my head, unless there's something big, big trick that I've missed. But it, it seems <laughs> to be no, no way that you could have, you know, commercial power plants anything less than 20, 25 years, no matter how big a risk you take, just because mm. that's how long it takes to, to build them. It's, it's quite a big question because when we mean, when we say fusion, do we mean when is the next tokamak going to be built or do we mean when is there going to be net energy or do we mean at what point is it commercialised or do we mean at what point is it meeting the base load of the energy that we're using in this country? So it's, it's, you have to define the question first, but if usually people mean, you know, when is the fusion reactor going to power my kettle? And the answer to that question is when everyone puts everything aside um, and has a strong, united, sustained effort towards achieving fusion for the world. I started this journey unsure of what our future energy system would look like, debating what we should be using. I think it's clear now, though, that there is no single power source that will be powering us in the future. It will be a combination a combination without fossil fuels, and one in which nuclear fusion will happen and will play a part. This should end our reliance on fossil fuels, which as we're all experiencing now, can have massive price hikes because of global issues. So we need fusion more than ever now, for both us and for the world. <laughs>